children, you can be dismissed. And for the rest of us, let's open to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we have a famous narrative found exclusively in John's gospel. And the cherished scene recorded here has been depicted often in works of art through church history. It speaks of a divine Messiah communicating his true identity to a woman of the world. Verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, are not, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now let's get this story situated contextually today. And let's try to understand the story as a whole. And the next week we'll return to it and explore it in more depth. John, unlike the synoptics, pays very careful attention to Jesus' interactions with individuals who are seeking to discover his true identity. John 3 recorded a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. John 4 records a conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. John 4 also records a conversation with a Gentile official. John 5 records Jesus' conversation with a man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus was certainly adept at counseling individuals from a variety of backgrounds. And for just a moment, let's contrast Nicodemus with this woman. Nicodemus was a Jew, the woman a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The woman was probably a societal outcast. Nicodemus was a male, and she obviously a female. Nicodemus was highly educated in Jewish religion. The woman was steeped in superstition. Nicodemus was a respected man of high moral caliber. The woman was guilty of marital infidelity. The woman had been married an astonishing five times and is even now living out of wedlock with a sixth man. This is, of course, highly unusual, especially in a culture where it was very difficult for a woman to secure a divorce. It's likely the woman's dubious reputation drove her to the well at an odd hour of the day. The reference here in verse 6 to the sixth hour almost certainly refers to the noon hour and the heat of the day. It was common for respectable ladies to come early to the well and secure the necessary water for their daily activities. But she comes late. Several years ago, I had a blonde-haired, blue-eyed teacher's assistant from California who had been employed with Disney as a princess. She was actually quite a good student. Her dad also was employed by Disney. In fact, years years earlier, he had met her mother, who played the part of Alice in Alice in Wonderland, uh, opposite his role as the White Rabbit. That's how they met. Well, my student had a talent for acting, and she was cast as the woman at the well in the BGU Living Gallery. She's a very good actor, too. He did, of course, have to deal with the problem of her blonde hair. But otherwise, the woman at the well bore a striking resemblance to a Disney princess. The fact is, the paintings of the scene that have been preserved through church history depict the woman as young angelic and inquisitive, a porcelain-faced beauty draped in flowing European dress, eager to receive her Messiah. She's a beautiful bride just waiting for her bridegroom to come. Well, we should probably picture the exact opposite. An aging woman, a fading beauty, 
a countenance hardened by years of infidelity and inquisitiveness tempered by skepticism. She is no young, pure, cherished bride on her wedding day. Years of infidelity, divorce, and remarriage have culminated in her finally dispensing with traditional betrothal formalities. She simply moved in with her latest paramour, or he with her. If you can imagine an aged Hester Prynne with a whole collection of scarlet letters, that's the woman at the well. Now, who would claim such a woman as his bride? Wouldn't you warn your son against a relationship with the town's local scandal? From a Jewish perspective, that question is especially poignant. Who would claim a Samaritan as his bride? The woman in verse 9 is shocked that Jesus would request her from her a drink from the well. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. If that's the case, what respectable Jewish male would ever claim her as a wife? Why am I saying all that? Well, let me show you something very interesting. If you turn back for a moment to John chapter 2, I want to pick up on a sub-theme that runs through John's gospel. John chapter 2. John uniquely records Jesus' first miracle. It occurred at a wedding. And verse 11, verse 11 relates its purpose. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus deliberately chose to first manifest his glory, his identity, at a wedding. That was apparent in verses 9 through 10 that the bridegroom was responsible to supply the wine according to first century Jewish custom. Look at the text, verse 9. When the mash of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The mash of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, we actually know surprisingly little about ancient Jewish wedding customs. But this much is certain. The bridegroom supplies the wine. When Jesus turned water to wine, he functions as the bridegroom. And his wine is superior That's a clue to who Jesus is, this one who is first manifesting his glory. Who is he? He is the greater bridegroom. And the disciples began believing on him. And now turn to John 3 and recall how John the Baptist responded when he discovered that people were flocking after Christ. In verse 29, John declares the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, Jesus is called many things. He's the door, the good shepherd, the vine. But John's choice of metaphors in this context is indeed very curious. Jesus is the bridegroom 
coming to claim his bride. And when John the Baptist sees his own disciples going off after Jesus, he is just thrilled. Now here's a question, a very important question. What sorts of people does this Jewish bridegroom call to be his bride? If you were to ask Nicodemus, how would he respond? Well, probably not with a Samaritan woman. So with all that in mind, turn back now to John chapter 4 and notice how the disciples respond when they discover Jesus communicating with the Samaritan woman. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Well, think about it. John the Baptist is thrilled to see people run off after Jesus, but what kind of people? The Jewish bridegroom is conversant with a Samaritan woman? Yes. Yes, indeed. Moreover, it's in this context that Jesus utters his famous call to missions. Look at verse 35. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What fields? Samaritan fields. The bridegroom came to call sinners from every tribe and tongue to be his bride. That is a theological point that John is making by the selection and the arrangement of his material in John 2, 3, and 4. From Nicodemus, a respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, to this despised Samaritan outcast, the bridegroom has come for his bride. Now it's worth noting one further contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. You would probably guess that Nicodemus would come easily into the kingdom, whereas the woman would prove to be the more difficult case. And the truth is it's exactly the opposite. Nicodemus' initial interest is followed by rising skepticism. The woman's initial skepticism is followed by rising interest. So that, friends, is how our passage is situated in John's Gospel. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to a few matters of the text. Verses 1 through 6 give us the geographical setting. Jesus departs Judea and returns north to Galilee. And verse 1 tells us this move was prompted by the Pharisees' recognition of Jesus' rising popularity. Judea was always a dangerous place for Jesus. It was, of course, the site of his final execution. For centuries, it was the place where many, many false Christs met their bitter ends. The synoptics add a detail here that John actually omits. John the Baptist was actually arrested and thrown into prison just before Jesus journeyed north into Galilee. And the Pharisees in verse 1 no doubt envision a similar fate for Jesus. Now in the first century there were two major roads connecting Galilee and Jerusalem. The shorter route, the one which Jesus took in verses 4 through 6, passed right to the heart of Samaria. This route lay on the western side of the Jordan, and it was the fastest route between Judea and Samaria back up to Galilee. 
The longer route journeyed east from Jerusalem. They went down the mountain pass to Jericho, then further east across the Jordan River, and then north through the Transjordan region, and then finally turned back and came back into Galilee over the Jordan once again. And Jesus at times did actually take that longer route. Well, the fact is, popular preaching and some commentaries have suggested that the Jews took the long route to avoid having to pass through Samaria. Their antipathy for the Samaritans was so strong that they went the long way around to avoid Samaria. But the fact is, there's actually no reliable evidence for this assumption from our ancient sources. I've heard that often, but you don't actually see that in the ancient sources. In fact, quite the opposite. Josephus tells us the Jews frequently took the shorter route, despite their hatred for the Samaritans. When Jerusalem feast concluded, hordes of Jews just opted to take the short route right back through Samaria to get back to their harvest, back to their crops, back to their livestock. In fact, Josephus says, quote, it was the custom of the Galileans when they came to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, at the festivals to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. So verse 4 has often been interpreted as Jesus just sort of defying conventional Jewish customs and taking the long route, of taking the long route, and instead journeying along the short route into hostile territory. Look at the text, and he had to pass through Samaria. But again, there's actually no evidence, as far as I'm aware, of this from our ancient sources. That Jesus had to pass through Samaria may be nothing more than an indication of the route that Jesus chose. But it certainly could be more than this. Jesus' whole ministry was characterized by a sense of spirit-led providence. To use the phrase that is common today, a sense of divine appointment. And certainly, God arranged this meeting at the well at the sixth hour on the day that Jesus was passing through. There's no doubt about that. And Jesus, even in his weary state, was not going to let an opportunity for evangelism to just slip by. It's also certain that the Jews and the Samaritans were not friendly toward each other. But the way that we should think about this is not in terms of two sovereign nations, with a sort of demilitarized zone between the two of them, like the border between North and South Korea today. That's actually not what it looked like in the first century. Samaria actually was not a distinct political state in Jesus' day. Samaria was united with Judea under the Roman procurator. Pilgrims actually could pass very freely from Judea into Samaria, even though there was tremendous cultural and ethnic tensions between the two groups. Those same tensions actually existed in many places throughout Israel. Up in Galilee, for instance, the Gentiles and the Jews bumped into each other, especially in the Decapolis region. Uh, Jerusalem itself was a city of great tension, as you had Jews and Gentiles mingling together. In fact, the strife between Jews and Samaritans was rather similar to the sort of internal strife that we see in our own cities today. Think of Minneapolis, for instance. So in verse 9, when the text says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, don't read into that more than is actually warranted by our historical sources. Think of that the way that we think of some parts of our country, where there is this fierce strife that exists between people from a variety of different cultures living together in close proximity. 
That's how we should think about this. In fact, in college, I worked for a tree nursery, and it was owned by a Japanese family who employed numerous Hispanics and a few white college students like myself. And I was, I was the definite minority in my hometown. And there were times when the cultural tension between employees was just, it was just palpable and very uncomfortable. I worked for a roofing company that employed Native Americans, Hispanics, and whites. You don't have to work in those environments for long before you pick up on a whole vocabulary of derogatory words uh, pointed at people from other cultures. I, I learned some words that my high school Spanish teacher failed to teach us. That, that's, that's, that's the scenario that we have here. Incredible, incredible tension. Racial tension actually is a fearsome weapon that Satan has used very effectively through the centuries to destroy humanity. But again, don't read into the context more than is actually warranted by our historical sources. Jesus is actually not defying local customs by journeying through Samaria. Rather, he is showing us a way forward in situations where friction exists between groups that have rubbed up against each other for centuries. And I'll say more about that in coming weeks. For now, let's turn our attention to Jesus' very interesting statement in verse 10 concerning living water. Jesus indeed must have been very thirsty after a long journey. And his request in verse 7 for a drink to assuage his physical thirst was certainly genuine. Jesus was also hungry, and that's why his disciples ventured into the city to buy food in verse 8. But Jesus has a greater mission than meeting mere physical needs. Jesus deftly turns the woman's surprise into an opportunity for evangelism. The woman is actually shocked when a Jewish man begins speaking with her. Customarily, this simply wasn't done. Instead of pressing the issue of his own thirst for physical water, Jesus turns to her soul's greatest need. Jesus essentially says, I have something that you desperately need. You need it more than physical water. I have the water of life, the water of eternal life. And Jesus, of course, is using water as a metaphor for eternal life, for eternal salvation. And in so doing, Jesus is probably alluding to numerous Old Testament sources that associate salvation with water or living water. Jeremiah, for instance, says that Yahweh is called the spring of living water. Jeremiah also criticizes Israel for turning to, quote, broken cisterns that can hold no water instead of her God. Isaiah invites all who are thirsty to come to the waters, which Isaiah uses as a metaphor for imbibing God's abundant grace. Zechariah and Ezekiel also anticipate a future new creation when living water just pours and flows out of Jerusalem. But the woman does not seem to comprehend what Jesus is saying to her. And her incomprehension may be due to the fact that many Samaritans actually only accepted the Pentateuch. 
Quite possibly, she had never read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, or Ezekiel. Well, whatever the case, verses 11 and 12 indicate the metaphor really is just, it's lost on her. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, clearly she believes living water is that sort of water that you can just haul up out of the well. So Jesus really has to clarify, what am I talking about? What is living water? Well, verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, living water, what is that? It's eternal life. Living water satisfies a thirsty soul forever. The bridegroom has really gone right into the heart of Samaria to tell the sinful woman that she needs to inherit eternal life. That's his mission. But she still does not quite understand. What is he talking about? Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here back to the well to draw water. She is still thinking of living water as a kind of permanent solution to the difficult work of drawing water up out of the well. As the passage moves along, we'll see this next week, Jesus is really going to have to deal with her misunderstanding. He's going to do so in a very curious way. But for today, what I want to do is just really keep our focus on the bigger picture of how Jesus is dealing with this woman, this woman of the world. Because I think it can be very instructive for us when we think about our evangelism efforts. You know, on Wednesday nights, we've been really developing our theme of giving the gospel to the world from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, this sermon hopefully will just really contribute to that. How does Jesus just really deal with this woman of the world? Well, Jesus, again, intentionally uses a metaphor for eternal life that is rooted in our basic understanding of physical life. Water is crucial to our survival. We know that. Without water, we die. Likewise, there is something crucial to your eternal survival. Water can sustain us for another day, but we need a source of life that will sustain us forever. That's the big picture of what Jesus is communicating to this woman. Let's use a physical example of the here and now to illustrate that you need something to sustain you forever. And let's just take the rest of our time this morning and just really apply this. C.S. Lewis was arguably the greatest Christian apologist in the 20th century. And his account of how he came to Christ reminds me a great deal of this passage. Lewis argues that human beings come equipped with certain desires. All of us have them, certain desires, innate desires that point beyond their present life and that can only be satisfied with eternal life. 
we are built that way. For example, Lewis argues that humans have an inbuilt craving for joy. We are beings that desire joy. We want to be happy. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis points us to those brief moments of pleasure which we spontaneously discover in the world. But they're always so brief. We experience moments of exhilaration when viewing a sunset, when visiting family, when enjoying delicious food or hearing a magnificent symphony. It just fills you with rapture. We are suddenly happy when we submit the final, final exam. And the whole summer awaits before us with all of its adventures. We are momentarily thrilled by a piece of good news. A surprise gift in the mail. A surprise encounter with an old friend. Just these warm moments of joy and exhilaration and happiness. There was a moment of supreme joy when a thirsty, thirsty person finds water. But those momentary joys are fleeting. They do not truly satisfy us at the core of our being. Joy is anything but permanent. You know that's true. You know that's true. You're happy, all right? And then it's like back to reality. You know what I mean? You do. This is why professional athletes have so much difficulty within days of achieving the highest prizes in their sports. Have you noticed this? The triumphant, sense, the triumphant sense of accomplishment, it just, it just so quickly fades. The gold medal is far more enticing before you win it than after you possess it, right? I mean, look at these athletes and look at the aftermath. Look at what becomes of them. It's very sad. Where will the next thrill come from? And friends, Lewis is not alone in writing of this deeply entrenched sense of longing or desire that all human beings have. John Steinbeck's narrator in East of Eden writes of going up into the mountains, as I love to do, to climb into their warm foothills almost as you want to climb into the lap of a beloved mother. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote of joys lying just beyond the walls of our world that we just can't quite grasp. Augustine put it famously, after years of debauchery, after years of pursuing sin, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Now Lewis argues that just as we are constitutionally driven to satisfy thirst with water, so we must satisfy our craving for joy. And our humanity is such that when we lack water... On a, in a physical sense, we become insatiable until our thirst are just satisfied. You, you, just, you can't think about anything else. You've got to find water. A glass of sand in a dry desert just simply will not satisfy a thirsty man. And he's just going to go right on searching for that which truly satisfies. But where, says Lewis, do we ultimately turn to satisfy our desire for joy? Where do we go? Lewis writes, God made us, invented us, 
As a man invents an engine, a car is made to run on petrol or gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. And here's the problem that mankind just keeps running into universally. Nature does not reward but defeats our efforts to find joy. Consequently, nature cannot be the source of our desire. The world is full of empty people looking to satisfy their thirst in all the wrong places. They search for lasting happiness through all the venues offered by nature. But friends, food, sex, wine, adventure, fame, talent, fortune, these all leave them empty. We simply cannot quench our everlasting desire for joy with any of nature's temporal goods. Not going to happen. How many celebrities, like the woman at the well, have had multiple marriages and many affairs, and they're always looking for something to satisfy them? And it always just proves so elusive. Can't hold on to it. Lewis says our capacity for joy after failing to find satisfaction anywhere else drives us, or ought to drive us, right back to God. Lewis writes, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And Lewis also writes, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And he also writes, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers and a longing to be acknowledged to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory and the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. Lewis, I believe, describes the very secret that Jesus is revealing in this passage. This woman is spiritually destitute. In her case, she pursues the pleasures of human relationships. Others have sought satisfaction through money, through power, through entertainment, through athletics, through fame. But Jesus knows that her desires will never, ever be satisfied in yet another relationship. And that's why, as we'll discover next week, he's going to go right to the heart of her problem. Go call your husband. And Jesus would say the same thing to you. What what desire are you seeking that hasn't been fulfilled? It's actually going to leave you empty. Worse than empty, it's going to leave you angry, frustrated, depressed, and suicidal. I had a student just this last week tell me, look, I, I was looking in all the wrong places, and I ended up being just suicidal. This happened Friday. She said, I just wanted to go out and commit suicide. 
David's son Amnon had a wicked, wicked desire for his half-sister Tamar. And when you read that terrible account, he schemed to finally satisfy his desire. And immediately, Samuel tells us, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Friends, that is the end of human desire, when it is misaligned with God's purposes for humanity. So friends, just bring your thirsty desires to Christ and let him give you a drink from the well of joy that never runs dry. That's where true happiness is found. So can I encourage all of us, believers and unbelievers, believers need this too, just bring, bring your thirsty desire to Christ, whatever's, whatever's leading you away from Christ at the moment, or if you've never believed on Christ, what is it that you're pursuing, all right? Bring that and plug it in to verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Well, what is it that you want most? What is it that you need? The fact is, if you're looking for it, we have a man in the Old Testament who pursued it. And he wrote about it. His name was Solomon. You want power? He tried that. Sexual relations, tried that a thousand times over. Fame, tried that. Alcohol, wine, tried that. Education, tried that. Buildings, art, gardens, fruit trees, music, pools, forests, herds, flocks, gold and silver, he tried all that. Entertainment, he tried that. He tried it all. And listen to what Solomon said. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Solomon is a scientist in a laboratory, testing his own heart, experimenting with every pleasure imaginable to see what would truly satisfy his heart. And what, friends, is his final verdict in a word? Vanity. So, friend, just plug your desire right there into verse 13, and you will be thirsty again. Your desire will turn into addiction, and addiction will bring forth death. And friends, just let the words of verse 14 just be your solution. But whoever drinks of the water, the gospel, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for these delightful words of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that all of us would renew, as believers, our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and be truly satisfied in him. And Father, for anyone here today who was running the experiment with their own heart that Solomon ran, looking in every place possible for joy. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they discover true joy and everlasting joy in Christ. We ask this for Christ's sake, that he might expand his kingdom and claim his bride out of every tribe and tongue and nation. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.